0: This morning's sermon will be based on a compilation of passages from the book of Proverbs about humility and pride. The verses can be referenced up on the screen. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Where there is strife, there is pride but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Mockers resent correction, so they avoid the rise. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Thanks,
1: Libby. Hey, everybody. I'm Nick, if you're new. Proverbs 2.9, what Libby just read, says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Alexi and I, a couple times during the year, we try to save up our date money and we go to American Players Theater in Spring Green and usually watch Shakespeare Shakespeare, and God Help Me, I Love the Tragedies. Um, The three greats, um, Macbeth, Hamlet, and King Lear, the least known is the one that they did this year. And um, it's hard to know exactly um, Shakespeare's purpose in the three and a half hours of that play, whether it is to take you on a trip for three and a half hours and then kill as many people as possible in the last three minutes, so as to set some kind of, Theban record for deaths, or uh, whether it is to clarify how profound, how predictable, and how complete is the tragedy that comes to vanity and pride and undisciplined passion. In Macbeth, the great sin that leads to tragedy is ambition— In Hamlet, it is unforgiveness and seething, brooding over injustice. In Lear, it is vanity and pride and lack of wisdom and passion unbridled in the king. And so the, the great tragedy of King Lear is, is not the death of the Duke of Cornwall or the plucking out of the eyes of the girl of, Earl of Gloucester or his later death or the death of his bastard son or the death of King Lear or of all three of his daughters, Goneril, Regan, and the good Cordelia, or the hanging of his wise fool. All of that is just expression of the tragedy that the absence of virtue and wisdom is the most common and complete precursor to tragedies of all kinds. And we've been we're doing this five-week series on Proverbs, and in the first two weeks, we focused on the value of wisdom. That is, the book of Proverbs says, she's more precious than jewels. Nothing that you can desire can compare with her. That is categorically, almost, there's almost nothing in life that is categorical. It's always true in every situation all the time, but that is said categorically. There is nothing in the world that you could possibly desire that is great enough that it can even compare with the actual value of wisdom. And secondly, we, we talk about how the word wisdom is used both in terms of knowledgeable ideas, but wisdom is used more generally in what we would later have called virtue. That is, a God-driven understanding that is disciplined into character. That is what the book of Proverbs means by wisdom, not just some pithy aphorisms that are generally helpful and maybe posted as an image on Facebook or, you know, the social media I don't use that is only pictures. And it, it's not that. It is a— the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is a God-centered, holistic body of knowledge it is discipline into character. That is, it is virtue. Broadly understood. And in the next two weeks, we went over two themes in how you would take a God-centered knowledge, discipline, and a virtue and what that would look like in the area of resources, work, savings, and wealth and in the superpower of our tongue and our speech and what we say to people and how that works because it's a huge theme in Proverbs. And this week, what we're going to end with is the diagnostics of wisdom. How, how do you get it if nothing can compare with your desire for it? If it is worth far more than anything else that you could desire, that it is seeking wisdom is seeking God, rightly understood. And if we desire both its benefits and its truthfulness, how do you chase it? Right? And there is... A virtue that precedes all other virtues. There is a piece of wisdom that precedes all other wisdom, and it is defining and it is golden. And what, what I mean by that is, a, a defining virtue is something that if you know this about a person, you already know so much more about how their life is gonna go. There are some things that if you know A, you know B through Z. And this virtue is defining. But it's also golden. A golden habit is something that if you, if you, if you focus on this habit, you get a bunch of others for free with it. It tends, it tends to create more, right? And Proverbs could not be more clear on this issue. And it is simply that humility produces wisdom. Humility produces wisdom. There is no way around that. There is no skirting the issue. There is no alternate method. There is no um, alternatives. There's, there's only one means by which wisdom can be truly acquired, and that is through humility. Wisdom comes from humility. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom— if you have pride, the end of that is going to be folly. It's going to be disgrace every time. That's what one produces the other. But the good news is, is that humility, with humility comes wisdom. And wisdom is more precious than anything. Nothing you could desire could compare with her. She brings honor and safety and life and beauty and right relatedness to all things and God. And, and those things come only from wisdom. And wisdom comes through humility. Now, there are a number of reasons why people re- reject that out of hand. That's very unpopular culturally for us because people re- reject it on the, on the basis of a number of things. One of them is, is that they just don't think they're particularly proud, and so they must be humble. And Biblical humility, the humility talked about in Proverbs, is not the absence of obvious arrogance. Right? That's not what, he's, that's not what Proverbs is talking about. Proverbs is talking about a very different thing. It, it doesn't just mean that if you're not particularly proud, you're humble. That's not a biblical idea. Okay. People, people also reject the idea of humility because um, they believe that Humility is essentially believing that you're worse than you are. That humility is thinking less of yourself. Um, The famous quote from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters is um, the the demon is talking about a perverted idea of humility that he's created. And he said, um, people think that humility is beautiful women thinking that they're ugly and clever men thinking they are fools. And the the reason why that's a problem is that not only is it false— But it encourages people to think that a virtue is based on a dishonesty. There is no virtue that comes from God's wisdom. There's no virtue that comes from God's wisdom that is built on a dishonesty. Humility is not believing a falsehood about yourself. And lastly, people reject it because they think that it will make them— a doormat for everybody to walk all over. That if you have a truly humble spirit, that humility is the opposite of assertiveness, and so people will take advantage of you. Actually, if you are humble, you will grow in wisdom, you will understand people's vices, and you'll be much wiser than you were otherwise, and almost nobody will take advantage of you. But the blessings of God are usually three, four, five, 25 steps, hence, intentionally hidden there so you wouldn't see them, so you wouldn't do what's right for the end it will produce, but you would do what's right because the thing that's right is good, true, and beautiful in itself. And no one can share God's heart who doesn't love beauty for its own sake, truth for its own sake, and goodness for its own sake. Instead, humility is these three things. It is an accurate self-assessment. No doubt you do think more of yourself than you really are. But the point is not to think of yourself less. The point is to have an accurate self-assessment, which means both haughtiness and despondency are pride. If you think you're big, a big deal, or if you think you're nothing, both of those are manifestations of a brokenness of humility. Humility is accepting you are what God says you are, which is a meaningful divine image bearer living a life of eternal significance, bearing the superpower of the human soul imbued with the very power of God himself, died for by the creator of the universe, and given purpose in the life that you live presently, capable of divine love, empowered by God and redeemed by him, And able to bear the weight of that Significance gladly and with cheer You are nothing less than that And can never be And if you deny it In negativity And despondency and gloom That is pride And if you Believe you are really more importantly other things That are only you and not your neighbor And which makes you higher And greater than them That is the haughtiness of pride that comes before fall, neither is accurate self assessment. But the minute you get anywhere close to accurate self assessment, humility immediately forgets it. Because humility forgets itself and points its attention towards God and its neighbor. Humility is full of love, and it is not particularly interested in itself, but in others. And in what's good and beautiful, it's much more interested in, the, in philosophy or flowers than it is in itself. And so, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, to quote, I think, also Lewis, repopularized by Tim Keller. And then the last thing, and it's off, this isn't often not talked about, is it's not being self filled that we human beings are dependent and serving conduits. There are divine and powerful things that come into us and flow through us, and pride silts up the stream bed of the flowing of that life. Pride is like, is like the gravel and sand that fills in a reservoir so that it can't really hold any water anymore because it's full of dirt. And we are meant to be open, cleaned out, pipes and riverbeds, that the That life and joy and cheer and happiness and compassion come in, flow out. We are dependent on God's power, open to his gifts, seeking to be filled with his spirit, and then seeking to let it flow into us and out of us. So the minute we are self-filled, we are self-plugged. And we aren't ourselves. And real humility The humility that is the only thing that produces wisdom, the queen of the virtues because it is the first of the virtues, is always accurately self assessing on the basis of God's truth, is self forgetful, and it is never self filling. (sighs) But then what? Right? Then what? So humility is the fear of the Lord. The, its wages are riches and honor and life. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more, more hope for a fool than for him, right? Pride is is the killer of these things. And wisdom is its gate. But how how does that humility produce wisdom? And if you move down the diagnostic steps of how this works and how God works, it also displayed as a huge theme in Proverbs. The answer is is that wisdom comes from humility seeking correction through community. So wisdom comes from humility, the personal state that God can create in us through faith, seeking correction in community. All those steps are, are very significant themes in the book of Proverbs. Now, I don't—I'm not going to re-preach the humility one, because we just did that, right? But categorically in the book of Proverbs, pride is always our greatest enemy, and humility always our greatest friend. Again, remember what I said at the beginning? There's very few things you can say categorically. Very few things are always true in every context. But wisdom is of supreme value, and nothing you can desire can compare with her. And pride is always your greatest enemy in here. And humility, always your greatest friend. Always, 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 always. There are no exceptions. If you want to read more on this, there's two actually quite short, like, Prayer of Jabez-sized books on this. Keller's is really a pamphlet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I read it in a deer stand in a couple of, couple of hours. And then Humility to Greatness by C.J. Mahaney is another really great book on this. If you've never spent a month or more meditating on humility and what it should be in you and how God could, could create it, I would enormously encourage you to stop what you're doing. I don't care what it is. Stop what you're doing and start with humility again. The second thing is that wisdom comes from humility seeking correction. This may be the largest dirty word um, or concept that we could possibly have, that wisdom seeks correction. Now, it would—it would be a big enough point if I just said that wisdom seeks instruction. I mean, we are such know-it-alls. Uh, when, when, I've, when I've been to Asia, one of the first things people tell me about the obvious difference that international students see in classes in America, as a, aside from their home countries, is that in their countries it is assumed that the professor knows mostly everything about the subject. And when you go into an American university classroom, it appears as though the students believe they know everything about the subject because they say they're constantly interrupting their teachers. They're constantly thinking their uninformed ideas are more well-formed and wiser than the professor's, apparently because he's a few years older than them. And it's so obvious in the way Americans act, right? And it's cultural. It's cultural. And there's some reasons for it, and some of those reasons are good. But we are also such know-it-alls. Down to our year olds and up to our bent-over-olds. We are such note-alls, and it would be profound enough to say that wisdom seeks instruction. Eight times, or 11 times in the first eight chapters of the book of Proverbs, Solomon pleads this, and he says, listen to my instruction. Just just let, just give, give what I'm teaching you. He's not even correcting him. He's just teaching him. That's all. It's just positive. It's just knowledge for him to know. He's not even saying you're doing something wrong, and yet he has to plead. Why? Because he knows human nature and human behavior and how we act, and we don't even want to hear instruction. And correction is a long way beyond instruction because it's personal. But you and I cannot grow wise. Without encouragement, positive feedback, and also correction, and the book of Proverbs actually uses a number of very negative words for this so if you look at, um, if you look at the passages the way a fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice, so that 's just advice, right? but advice means you think you, you might think you don 't know the answer doesn't it? if you 're seeking advice and the other person isn't butting in, it assumes that you have already perceived that you may not know the answer and you're seeking advice, which is a step in the right direction according to the Bible. Okay? Mockers resent correction, and so they avoid the wise, because somebody may offer correction. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. So that's not delicate. That's not a delicate verse, really, right? Those who disregard discipline despise themselves. But the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Rebuke impresses a discerning person more than a thousand lash, a hundred lashes a fool. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a rebuke, is the rebuke a wise judge of a wise judge to a listening ear. Do you see the words being used there? Correction, rebuke, and discipline. Now, I have not included because I don't want to drag in the whole controversy of the rod. But there's about eight, six to ten verses about the rod in Proverbs. About how sometimes we need a beating. Okay? And I don't want to get too far into that because we live in such sort of like a pacifistic, sort of like, don't touch people sort of culture. For all the history of the world, they thought sometimes people deserved a good beating, right? I mean, that was true in America up until probably the 60s, right? If somebody insulted your wife and you punched them in the face, that was not considered a jailable tragedy, right? Now somebody can grope your wife in public, and if you lay a hand on them, you'll be a felon, right? But I'm sure it's modern wisdom that we should all imbibe. The the, the point is that there's a number of things— here that are profoundly, not just negative, not just correctional, but painful words. To be corrected is to be told you are doing something wrong. To receive discipline means that you receive something painful. Discipline assumes the counter-motivation of pain. The word assumes that. The concept assumes that. And rebuke assumes a little bit of humiliation. It's, it has this like negative connotation of being told off, doesn't it? That's not a new addition. The word has always meant that. It means that you get both barrels from somebody. That's what it means. That they're not particularly delicate in how they tell you what you're doing is not okay and is destructive to yourself and others. And yet, for all this negativity, the author of Proverbs is making a contrast. You get corrected with both barrels. But if you're wise, you receive it. It, That's meant to be evocative. It's meant to be seen as such a contrast to how we are. That's not what we're like. Look around, play back your life for yourself. That's not what we're like. And it, it doesn't it does just say in Proverbs that, that humility seeks correction. It, it says that humility knows correction is required because it's, we don't learn simply by hearing propositions. We learn, like, we learn in a zigzag. And because we, we learn in a zigzag, we don't just get it right the first time. We need encouragement that pulls us, and we need correction that pushes us. We need people to call us out to something, and then every once in a while we need somebody to, like, check us back into something. And we approach wisdom and righteousness and virtue like this. And if we don't have someone helping us forward, and if we don't have the shoe putting some guardrails up for us to run into what proverbs says is we go off the cliff human nature in the bible is not we are born innocent noble savages and the evils of human civilization take away our creativity at a very young age the biblical anthropology is we are born sinful fools sinful sinful and simple From simplicity, we become foolish, and from foolishness, we become wicked. And therefore, unless there is intervention that produces faith and trust and wisdom, we find ourselves destroyed. And because of that, the Bible says that the wise person... loves wisdom, actually loves rebuke, and it says that God pours out his heart to the one who is humble and listens to correction. So in at the very—at the beginning of Proverbs, he says, if you had responded—he's speaking in the voice of wisdom right now—if you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. You see, what we think is, no, you should be really nice to me first. And if you are super nice and only encouraging to me for a decade, then at some point maybe you could say something moderately negative and I wouldn't storm off from our friendship or our family in a huge huff. But what that says is is that the heart of wisdom says this, I'm going to come at you with both barrels and tell you the truth. And if you prove yourself to be a lover of the truth, not just a lover of protecting yourself, if you demonstrate that when you receive that pain and the seething humiliation of a fear of losing your very self because you're self-filled comes over you, and if you realize that there's something bigger than that, and you release that feeling of humiliation to the peace that comes to that it is God's identity that sets your identity, and you show yourself that you love truth more than your sin and your self-filled idolatry, wisdom says, if you show that, I will pour out my heart to you. All the secret knowledge, the wisdom of how things go, the very heart of God himself, I'll pour out to you. Because God, God doesn't pour champagne on the ground. He just really isn't like that. He is wasteful in relationship. He will pour out himself for the redemption of people. But it was Jesus that said, don't throw pearls in front of pigs. There's often a test of the heart before God pours out his heart to us, because that's wisdom. And when people realize that, that truth, all of a sudden, the humble person longs for candor. They long for it, and they adore it, and they know they are loved by the people who offer it lovingly. And so it says in Proverbs 9 8, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Same exact thing as don't throw pearls before swine, right? If someone's a mocker, you tell them wisdom, they're just going to hate your gods, right? But he said, but rebuke a wise man. Rebuke. You see that negative word again? Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Because he doesn't see it as an attack against his very sense of self. He sees it as a carriage load of gold being brought into his house. So what if it's loud as it clanks against the stones? 27, six Wounds for a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses, meaning... An enemy will not correct you. They will flatter you. They will only taunt you when they know they're stronger than you and they have you. That's why C.S. Lewis says in um, The Horse and His Boy, it's only moral to taunt someone when they are stronger than you. That's a great—I love that paragraph. The king is teaching his son, don't taunt people when you've defeated them. You only taunt people when you know they're stronger than you. And then only as you dare. Right? Because the enemy will flatter you. They will multiply kisses. But the wounds of of a friend can be trusted. They will drive a sword into you for your good. They will have the guts and courage of a surgeon when you need it. And if you don't have anyone that does that, you may have a short list of objectively true friends. Or you may have friends, which this may be even more likely in our culture, you may have friends that just don't know how to be friends. There are piles of us that just, we have to really learn what it means to be a faithful friend because it includes offering loving correction, because you don't want your friend to go off the cliff, and you want them to embrace and enjoy life. And love demands—love demands that you even risk and lose your friendship with that person if that is what is required to save them. That's actually how King Lear starts. The very first scene when he banishes his daughter for telling him the truth, his true and great friend Kent says, what what craziness is this? And Kent gets banished also because he's the only one that will stand up and tell Lear the truth. And he, Shakespeare gives us, in him, he gives us the true friend. And then the last step is they seek correction which requires being in the community of the wise. Right? If you're going to get loving, wise, saving, transforming, correction. That's—you have to be in the company of the wise. It's not rocket science, is it? Good—and we don't just need good correction. We need consistent correction. We need to get—we need not—we don't need to get, like, hammered down with people hating on us. That's not what I'm talking about. Taylor Swift would be for this point, okay? Okay. um, What we're talking about is the redirections of love that are necessary for us to find life in God, for us to trust him day in and day out, to have the courage to take steps of faith and walk away from sin and repent. That is a difficult, convoluted thing, and other people see us more clearly sometimes than we see ourselves, and we need not just good, but we need consistent correction. Proverbs 15, 12 says, Mockers resent correction so they avoid the wise. Notice it doesn't say the fool, Because the word fool doesn't hold a connotation of pride strongly enough. The mocker is a fool, but he's also arrogant, and he makes fun of goodness. That's what a mocker is. And people who are not just fools but proud of it, they intentionally avoid the wise because they don't want correction. 1320 says, He who walks the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm one of the easiest ways to grow wise is to have the humility to just get around wise and godly people. You want to you become healthy as a person? You want to become godly and holy? The most straightforward way to do that is to find someone who is godly, holy, and healthy and get in their companionship by whatever means you have to. Any noble means that you have to. And this is, this is why, when we come to Christ, and we recognize what it means to follow him, wisdom that is grounded in humility will always lead people to the actual, physical, human, local church. Always. Because if—you can get general wisdom anywhere. I mean, there's wisdom all over the place. It's mixed in with a lot of other stuff, but you can, there's wisdom everywhere. You'll find wisdom in other places— But whole wisdom, the book of Proverbs says, always starts with a fear of the Lord. It always starts with with honoring the character of God. It always starts with knowing what God has spoken and shown about himself, which we have more than Solomon did. We know that that has come into full fruition in the person of Jesus. And so to have whole wisdom, we have to be in the presence of God those who believe in how God has spoken and shown himself in Jesus, God's true wisdom. Remember what Jesus, one of the things Jesus said about himself? He didn't just say he was the Son of God. There was one time where he said, don't you see, one greater than Solomon is here. Not just in that he was the Messiah and great king, and he was a greater and richer king than Solomon, but that he was also the culmination of all wisdom. And God's wisdom is not just embodied in Jesus, but the Bible says it is expressed through the gospel. When Paul gets to the end of, I think it's chapter 11, not chapter 9, but I can't remember right now. It's one of those two. Paul gets to the end of explaining the gospel, and he, he ends with this, with this outbursting of worship, which we call doxology, and he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord that he would instruct him, right? And on and on he goes. And the idea is that he has just explained the gospel. How Christ has come, into what context, how he rewrites the story, how that changes everything, how it places us in cosmic and universal history, and what it means that we are what we are, and how it reformats and yet embraces all the wisdom of Proverbs and all of how God has spoken and shown himself back to Adam or even further to the first Adams. And so humility in a believer will always lead them to the local church, to human personal embodiments of wisdom that they can be in the company of that will correct them lovingly. And they will also recognize that wisdom is by its fundamental nature intergenerational because wisdom just takes time. Wisdom is philosophical knowledge made character, and so it's knowing God, seeing his truth, understanding it in context, meeting it out in experience, disciplining it into character so that it becomes virtue, and that just takes time. And people who are in the game are further along two decades hence. Now, some people are never in the game, and they're not any further along. But that's not who we're counting. If you are looking for the holistically wise in Christ, seeing the span of things, and as mature as you can find so that you can get in their company and receive what you need to grow through humility, then you are looking for somebody who's crock-potted or old Texas-style barbecued for a while in this stuff, and they're probably gray somewhere near the top. Or they've got some crow's feet. They've got four feet, not just two. They have experience. They've taken time, and therefore, the healthy local church in which wisdom flows in and out between people, where the gospel is at the center, healthy local church must be intergenerational. There must be humility in the generation so that the older generations wishes to impart knowledge, but they also wish to impart encouragement. They are accepting. They realize that they're at the point of their life where they're the advising generation, They're not the emerging generation. They're not in charge anymore, but they're there, and what are they there for? They're there to impart wisdom, to be the memory of a people, and to share and inculcate and help people grow in wisdom, to offer love and encouragement and correction. And yet to realize what those they will correct and help will build will look somewhat different than their own work. And Younger people will have to recognize that the nature of wisdom is that it it barbecues over time It just takes time and there is there are things that they don't see It's the failure of the young is not that we don't have knowledge is that we don't have it in its proportion to everything else And so our views are all out of proportion And some of them are false because we don't see the other related thing that would make that false not the thing within itself And so that sense of broad disproportion, having gone through a couple of cycles of something, we still have it, and we have to know we don't have it. We should be humble in our knowledge as it is and seek and even expect there to be something worthwhile. If somebody has followed Jesus for 35 years, I don't care if you think their clothes are ridiculous and if they're a little chubby, they probably have a lot for you. that is incredible, if you will be present to receive it, and if you will invite it. And so if we're going to do this, essentially this is a pithy way of saying what we need to recognize is that we, we have to get into a lifestyle of community, even though we exist in a culture of activity. We don't live in a culture of community. We live in just a culture of doing stuff, a lot of stuff, because it's essentially a culture of competition while pretending it isn't. That's why we have a nice, community-based city, and we have tons of racial strife. A lot of that strife comes from the incipient competition we can't let go of because we're competitive by nature, and so we're always trying to get competitive advantages, hence blocking other people out, and people getting angry at each other and wanting a better deal. Everybody, and yet we're oh we're this nice community. Generally speaking, no, we're a culture of activity, is what we are. And so we don't know other people that are mad at us or that we're mad at. There isn't community. We may be in the same community that is streets, trees, and houses, but there isn't community. Because we live in a culture of activity. Everybody is moving so fast, you can't just have Sarah over on Thursday. Because you're doing something else. And you have to, you have to quit, right? Like this, I was talking to a family just the other day, and they were like, we're just thinking about quitting this whole thing. And I, was like, I told my wife, I was like, they're just thinking about quitting, kind of like us. And she's like, they're never going to quit. They're so invested in the game. I'll believe it when I see it. My wife is so sweet. Um... <laughs> But she knows that because, like, we've been trying to quit for, like, six years. And it's really hard. And yet, it must be done because if you want wisdom, there has to be humility. Humility produces wisdom partly by seeking and loving correction. And the right kind of correction, given consistently, you can only really access in community with the wise— In the local church, not in a particular rush. And I believe one of the places this can be most embodied, besides Sunday morning and Sunday classes, is actually in small groups. We really encourage um, people to be interested in being in small groups with people who are not in their same life stage. And um, if you are in your 20s or 30s and you Um, want to lead a small group, that's great. And you shouldn't be intimidated by some older people being in your small group. And you should really want that because you shouldn't want a single generation small group. And and we can find some loving people who are of more advanced life stages who aren't going to talk condescendingly at you most of the time. and, And that will really enrich your community. And you should want that. And if you are of more advanced and mature years um, you know we really need you to be open to being in small group with people that don't have the same aches and pains as you you know and, and that their their main interest when they get together is not to show the newest picture of the grandkids I mean, that's just that's just a rea- reality and and for you to know that you that, that that they have to learn to want what you can offer in wisdom and you have to realize that not everything you think is the wisdom that you have is actually wise, but some of it is, and that you can lovingly and humbly, even sometimes correctively, offer it to others, and it is in that loving interplay that wisdom grows in the midst of humility that seeks correction that is in community. Namely, the intergenerational community of the Christ-centered local church, in which you fight for her health because you need her. When you realize how badly you need the local church as an expression of the body of Christ, you will live towards her health totally differently, and you will do everything to fight for her health and her beauty and her godliness and her humility so here are the applications we've talked about. Wisdom comes from humility seeking correction through community. That's a really good slide, right? Um, so let's go through a few applications. One, we need a right definition of humility, not a fake one. Accurate self-knowledge, self-forgetfulness, not self-filled. Two, we need to gain a teachable spirit. We need a teachable spirit. We need a spirit that doesn't just say, Teach me to God abstractly and hope that God speaks the message we need in our heart. We should be open to that. But what God normally does is He says, Go read my Bible and go talk about it with other Christians, or go to church, or have some spiritual friendships that are covenantal, and I will speak to you everywhere but especially through wise believers, if you open yourself up with a teachable spirit. We need to seek out correction. Learn to love a truthful and honest correction. Who, how many people know if they, if they see anything, they fear anything for you and what they see in you, that they are to alert you immediately? How many people know that in your life? How many people have you gone to, in situations, and specifically asked them, you know, we've been hanging around for a couple days, my family's been hanging around with your family for a couple of days, what have you seen in me that you fear for me? Because they have things. If they're intelligent and at all observant, if they're not utterly oblivious, and they've been around you for a little while, they have things. They just put them in the file of, someday maybe he'll ask me, (laughs) but I can't offer it or it'll destroy everything. Seventeen, Seek God-centered wisdom Not just generic wisdom Next, therefore seek out the local church Seek out the companionship of wise people Recognize that wisdom is usually intergenerational Because it takes time to come to its fullness And last, look with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to the perfect humility in Jesus. Jesus is the one who who forgives our pride and arrogance. He is the one who, in his perfect performance of humility, When he comes in union with us, imputes that humility and that perfect righteousness of perfect self-understanding, perfect self-forgetfulness, and perfect divine filling and God-focusedness. He imputes that to us, and we receive it in Christ. He is the one who models perfect humility. Though everything was made by him and for him, He died for the redemption of those things. He's the one who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. As Christians, we are to see the Christ through the Proverbs. We are to see that one greater than Solomon is here. We are to see that the embodiment of Lady Wisdom is the man, Jesus Christ. And we are to see in him the seething pride that is silted up the reservoir and the flowing of God's beauty through us. And to see how in the rushing of his spirit, he can open the reserves and blow out the silt of our hearts that is the self-filling of our prides. So you know how they, you know they take care of, um, of dams that they've put up that start to fill with silt? You know they do? They open up the gates And the water rushes out And blows it out of there And the first step to humility Is to say Jesus, I absolutely Unconditionally need you My heart is silted up with pride I am self-defined From the first moment I am not self-forgetful For five minutes together In any day and my self-assessment is that I am the greatest thing that's ever walked this earth. And, or I am so bound to my despondency that I see my self-realization and my self-hatred. And just say, I repent and receive your rebuke and even your rod if necessary that your spirit would redeem and save and forgive and cleanse and that my silted up heart would be blown out by the rushing of the water of your life so that I could have some vision, that I could experience your imputed humility, that I could see myself for what I am, that I would have so much greater a thing to focus on than myself, and that I would I would not dream of being self filled when I know that I can be filled with the Spirit that comes from You. Would Jesus, in that way, becomes the center of everything that You are, when you see the gospel in that light, when you see Jesus specifically as the one greater than Solomon, that has come to deal with our simplicity, our foolishness. Our wickedness, our mocking. And he's come saying that once that rebuke comes, and it's pain, there comes the promise of Proverbs chapter 1. If you would respond to my rebuke, I would pour out my heart to you. That promise is not old. It doesn't age because it's truth about an unchanging being. It doesn't age one minute. In this moment, if you give yourself to Jesus or give yourself again to him in the midst of your pride, in seeking humility, he says on the base of his character, if you would respond to my rebuke, I would pour out my heart to you. So the band's going to come up here and, and we're going to sing a song that hopefully will be vaguely related to what I've just talked about. And um, when, we, when we do the last song, um, if you're not singing because you're considering, that's, that's, that's great. It's totally fine. The reason we do a last song is not so that we can have something between us and the end of this, this, the uh, service so that we can forget the sermon before we even leave— The purpose is so that we could try to deal with how God would want us to respond to what was truly the re-speaking of his word and whatever the preacher said. Don't walk out the doors and let humility be snatched away from you. Embrace her and she will be your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to love you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, in Christ, the one who is greater than Solomon. We pray that in him and in his rebuke, we would release our self-filling, our our self-attending, and our insane self-assessments. And that we would find in you the identity that leads to true humility. That humility is that leads to correction, that correction that leads us to the company of the wise and godly, and that in that it would lead us to the thing that is more precious than rubies that nothing can compare with, that divine wisdom that is hidden in Christ. When we receive your rebuke, Lord Jesus, open your heart to us and show us the riches of your wisdom. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.